Welcome to Light for the Journey, a podcast of Russell Memorial United Methodist Church. Each week, we open the scriptures in faith that the timeless truth of God will guide us as we seek to follow in the steps of Jesus. Christians often say that Jesus came to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. When we say that, we often may imagine ourselves as the afflicted ones Jesus is comforting, while other people are the ones Jesus is afflicting. After all, we are not the Pharisees and Sadducees that lost their way. Those people over there are the ones that Jesus came to afflict. However, in this week's message from Palm Sunday, Pastor David Cartwright points to how Jesus challenges us all to see and understand our own sin instead of focusing on the sin of our neighbors. As we go to our message today, let's open our hearts and minds to the truth that God would speak to us. I invite you to turn in your scripture this morning to John chapter 12. We'll be reading today from verse 12 through verse 19. As we make our way through the message, you want to keep your scripture open there to the gospel according to John. We'll pretty much camp there today. Hear now God's word, John 12, beginning at verse 12. On the next day, the large crowd who had come to the feast, when they heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem, took the branches of the palm trees and went out to meet him and began to shout, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. Jesus, finding a young donkey, sat on it, as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming, seated on a donkey's colt. These things his disciples did not understand at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things were written of him, and that they had done these things to him. So the people who were with him, when he called Lazarus out of the tomb, and raised him from the dead, continued to testify about him. For this reason also the people went and met him, because they heard that he had performed this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, You see that you are not doing any good. Look, the whole world has gone after him. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Our gracious Father, in these moments, grant the, the presence of your Spirit so that our hearts and our minds are quiet and open before you. May the words that I speak be words of your truth. May they be spoken in simplicity so that there is understanding, with gentleness so that your grace is known. Speak to our hearts today. For every good thing that we receive and experience, we give only to you praise and glory. In the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Here we are again, Palm Sunday, sometimes called Passion Sunday. In that time in the Christian year when we uh, come back to that uh, day, the triumphal entry of Jesus, 
when the crowds were gathered around him, waving the palm branches, laying garments in the street as he rode triumphantly into Jerusalem in the week of their feast. I suppose for years now, this is a day when I can't escape the irony of the day. The irony being that we, the, the, key, the key word for today is what? Hosanna. Well, we sang that just a little while ago, right? That, that's the word that resonates in our mind for, for Palm Sunday. It, it's a, a shout of praise, of triumph, of, of glory to, to one who rides in as, as someone who is victorious. And to think about the reality that in just a few days, the one whom they are celebrating is going to end up abandoned and dying on a cross. It's not surprising to say that a controversial figure ends up meeting his death. There's really nothing about that that surprises us. And Certainly, Jesus fits the category of someone who was controversial in his uh, ministry. But the irony really is the, the shift that happens from the people who one day are proclaiming his glory and celebrating him. And, and as you've probably heard preachers say one year after the next, that that the cries on, on Sunday of Hosanna turn into crucify him on Friday. It's just really noteworthy that, that we can make that drastic shift of shouting Hosanna to him and then shouting crucify him. How do we go from one extreme to the other? Well, there's there's a reason for that and it really centers around the reality that that the people for the most part did not understand the kind of kingdom that Jesus was bringing to them they rightly understood him as a king they just didn't understand his kingdom that's why uh, Pilate could stand before him and say, so, so you are a king. And, and Jesus would say, yes, uh, but my kingdom isn't of this world. You see, you're, you serve a king, I'm a king, but the kingdoms, the, the, there are different kinds of kingdoms. And I also have to wonder how painfully poignant it must have been for Jesus on this day when he was riding into town, hearing the voices around him who were shouting Hosanna, and knowing that in just a few days the same voices would be calling for his death. In fact, the, the Gospels tell us that as he was riding into town that he wept. He wept over Jerusalem. He wept over the people. And he wept because they didn't understand the things that would truly bring peace for them.
Now, it's not surprising that the text uh, describes for us what it does. I mean, if you, all you have to do is just want, raise one person from the dead, and people won't stop talking about you. That seems pretty easy, doesn't it? Raise one person from the dead, and people will be talking about you all day long. John has described for us right up to this point the raising of Lazarus in Bethany. And, and this event is, is fresh in the minds of everybody. They're still talking about it. In, in fact, and I would love to spend some time on this because it, it's part of the Gospels that I really like, but John has just previously described to us the reality that, that, that the, the Jewish leaders wanted to put Lazarus to death also because on account of him so many people were going over to Jesus. That's a powerful testimony. You know, people want to kill you because, you know, others are turning to Jesus because of you. What a great testimony. But you see, the crowds are all about Jesus now because he's done these, this marvelous work, and, and they've heard his teaching, and they've seen other miracles, and, and now the raising of Lazarus, and they're going, yeah, man, he's our guy. And so when, when he when he does what, what Jews would have recognized as a messianic uh, sign, and he, he gets on the donkey and he rides into town, they're thinking, this is our deliverance. This is it. This is the guy that we've been waiting for, and, and, and they are on the bandwagon. You know how crowds work, don't you? They, they have a gravity, a gravitational force to them. And it didn't take much for the gravitational force to work. And a few people start waving palm branches, and more people join in, and more people join in. And pretty soon you have a, a powerful movement. Jesus is popular. The crowds love him. They're celebrating him. This is how crowds work. And, and I don't want to dismiss or... or uh, unfaithfully portray the, the raising of Lazarus. The raising of Lazarus was a kingdom work. Jesus used it to point to the reality of who he was. It, that was at the point where Jesus said to Lazarus' sister Martha, I'm the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, even though he dies, yet shall he live, and those who live and believe in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Do you believe this, brothers and sisters? I mean, this is the gospel. It was a kingdom event. But the problem is the crowd didn't understand the nature of his kingdom. And you see, when we misunderstand, we end up celebrating for the wrong reasons. And we get behind a Jesus, and we get behind a gospel that isn't the right one. And that's where things start to turn. And that's where we have to find the challenge that, hey, are we going to be a follower of Jesus who is popular? Or are we going to be a follower of Jesus, the kind of Jesus where you might be the only one in his footsteps and everybody else has walked away? Bookmark chapter 12, if you will. Let me get you to turn back just a few chapters. I told you to leave your gospel open there. Go back with me, if you would, to John chapter 6. 
what I want here is to just let you observe that, that this is a this is a remarkable chapter in which events from the beginning of the chapter to the end take a drastic turn with Jesus and his ministry. Um, I, and I'm, I'm going to tell you going into this that there's so much of this text that I'm not going to get into because we could get sidetracked, we could be here hours kind of working our way through this chapter and I know you're going to want to go eat lunch so I'm not going to get sidetracked with a lot of the uh, the text here. But I want to just frame the chapter for you, if you will. Chapter 6 of John's Gospel account begins with one of the few things that all four Gospel accounts uh, tell us about, and that is what we normally call the feeding of the 5,000. It's this time when Jesus and his disciples are out. There's a multitude of people around him. They're up around the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus has been teaching them. We don't have the content of that, that teaching, but we know that it's powerful because we know what Jesus' teaching is like. And at the end of the day, uh, you know, the, the crowds are hungry, they're away from towns, and Jesus uh, blesses the loaves and the fish, and these thousands of people are fed. And, and let me ask you, brothers and sisters, would that be an impressive event for you? Yes? Okay. All right, well, make sure you're with me. So you would be with the rest of the crowds that day. And so these, these, this multitude of people get to see this amazing uh, miracle of Jesus of, of feeding that many people, and they want to follow him. And so as the text of the chapter goes, Jesus moves on. He moves on to another part of the territory around the lake. The crowds follow him. You know, the, the, the question on their mind is, where did he go? And so they start chasing after him. They hear a little rumor, maybe went here, went here or there, and, and they catch up with him. And when they catch up with him, Jesus starts to lay down the reality for them. Okay, so I want you to look at verse 26 in John chapter 6. Now, all, all these things have happened. He's, he's you know, fed the multitudes. The crowds have followed him around to where he is next. Jesus, in verse 26, says to the crowds, Truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me not because you saw signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Okay, you understand that, don't you? Okay, you get what Jesus is saying. He's saying, look, you, this is not that you recognize something of the kingdom. You know, you're not... You're not chasing after the godly thing here. What was it Jesus said in his teaching, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, not the things of the earth? And Jesus is saying, you're just seeking things of the earth. You're after me, not because you're chasing after the things of God, because you saw a sign, which is this gospel writer's word for any of those powerful things. That's not what you're about. You got your belly full, and you want me to do it again. You got your belly full, and you want me to do it again. It comes down to the question, what is it that I want Jesus to do for me? Let that question stick in your mind for a few moments. Because we all have the question. 
It's really not a bad question, but we have to kind of think about how we frame it. Jesus said, you just saw something that was self-serving. And that's what you're after. Jesus took the opportunity, and again, I'm not going to get into a lot of the text because it, it would really bog us down, but Jesus takes the opportunity to talk about the bread and that which feeds and gives life, and he uses that as an analogy to point to the things of the kingdom. And he reminds the people of their own heritage going back to their ancestors who were led by Moses through the wilderness, a time in which they well remember that God had fed them with manna from heaven. And in the minds of the people, they understood that it was Moses who gave them the bread because Moses was the prophet who led them during that time. And Jesus says, it wasn't Moses who gave you the bread. It was God who gave you the bread. God gives you the true bread. And then he goes further using what we would consider a pretty graphic uh, analogy, uh, a picture if you will, to, to point to his own ministry, his sacrificial life, and saying to the crowds, that it would ultimately be his body, his flesh, that will be the true bread that is given, that gives life. It was a difficult saying even for the people at that time. Even for us 2,000 years later with our refined sensibilities, we read the, the, the text that seems kind of graphic where Jesus talks about his flesh and his blood that is given, and that's the true food and, and drink that, that people will receive and, and, and get life from it. And the people had a hard time with it. You see, he points to himself and that which really gives life, but the people struggled. Look with me, if you would, at verse 60. I told you I was not going to get into a lot of the text of this, but I want you to see, if you go all the way over to verse 60 in John chapter 6, it says at this point, Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a difficult statement. Who can hear it? Oh my. Jesus just got difficult with them. Now, let's all be confessional for a moment, okay? I mean, just, can, can we be, can we agree to uh, just be honest? When Jesus talks about easy stuff, it's easy to agree, right? We can jump on board real easy. But when Jesus talks about hard stuff, sometimes we want to back off. And when Jesus gets personal, it really gets hard. And this is exactly what Jesus was doing. He was, he was going to get personal with them about the reality of the brokenness in the world. 
where the problem really lies. And they would not want to hear it. This is a difficult statement. What do you do with Jesus when he gets to the tough stuff? If you look just a little bit further, in verse 66, the gospel writer tells us, as a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. It's amazing. In about 60 verses of text, Jesus goes from wildly popular to extremely unpopular. And all he had to do was just to get tough and to point to the reality of human brokenness and the remedy God would send for it. Now, I don't want to leave this without the recognition that is due to Simon Peter. Because we give Peter a hard time, don't we? Come on now. You all better say amen. Because we read the Gospels and we give Peter a hard time. That knothead just, I mean, how in the world? He got it wrong so many times. Listen, Peter got it right. Right here. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. That is remarkable. Peter, when the crowds were walking away, he decided that it was worth sticking with Jesus. To whom shall we go? You are the one, Lord, that has the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to get it? Peter made the right decision. When Jesus was unpopular to everybody else, Peter stuck with him. I know you're saying, oh, you're talking about the same Peter who on the night that Jesus was arrested, uh, he denied him three times, right? Yes, same Peter. Tell me, would you have done any better? I wouldn't have. I wouldn't have. You see... What the Gospels hold up for us is the reality that regardless of what the Pharisees thought on that day of triumphal entry, the world is not going to go after Jesus. What they saw was a momentary phenomenon that had no staying power. The world is not going to go after Jesus because the world wants something that Jesus doesn't offer. Ironically, Jesus offers what the world needs. And the world tends not to want to accept it. The people on the day when Jesus rode into town 
recognized him as a king. But their question, what can this king do for us, was centered around the idea that their problem that needed to be addressed was outside of them. They could point to another entity and say, that's the problem, Jesus, I want you to fix that problem. It's, it's that uh, ruling power, it's that governor, it's that king, it's that problem out there, fix that problem for me. And the kingdom that Jesus came to set up is one that answers in a different way. Yes, it's still about what Jesus can do for me, but it acknowledges that the reality of the, that the problem isn't out there. The problem is in here. The problem is me. I'm the one that needs redemption. I'm the one that needs fixed. I'm the one where the problem resides. And what Jesus has done for us is, is to address that problem. And it becomes very unpopular. This is the tough reality of the gospel. There, there's a guy who has become fairly popular in modern cultural conversations. His name is Dr. Jordan Peterson. He's a clinical psychologist and a professor of psychology. He uh, is a fairly popular voice now around some of the cultural issues that are going on in our society. I listened the other day to an interview uh, where Dr. Peterson was being interviewed. And at the beginning of the interview, uh, the, the other the interviewer was uh, being very kind to Dr. Peterson and acknowledging him, and, and I'm using the phrasing that was used, uh, acknowledging Dr. Peterson in the estimation of the interviewer to be a good person. Uh, that's the quote, that's the wording I'm using, that he was a good person. And Dr. Peterson was very quick to, to reject that. And he did so very, very graciously, but he was very quick to reject that. And in his response were these words, and I wrote them down, and, and I'm, I'm directly quoting what he said in response to that idea about him being a good person. And he said, I learned in the early 80s that people have a great capacity for evil. I didn't really understand that about myself until after meditating on it for a long time. I did become terrified of how terrible I could be. I became terrified of how terrible human beings could be. It's easy to understand that of other human beings, but it is a different thing to understand that it could be true of yourself. And I think he is spot on. It is really easy to see the potential of evil in everyone around us. But it is a completely different thing to recognize the potential for evil that resides within us. And that is the very thing that the gospel calls us to recognize. It's not so much the brokenness of everyone else. It is that. 
but it's the brokenness of self. And how far short we come of the glory of God. But strangely, those are the kinds of things that we as a people so much want to brush off and put aside. In fact, in some ways it becomes very unpopular. The Bishop Mike Lowry of the Central Texas Conference wrote an article recently addressing some of the problems that we find even within our own denomination. Bishop Lowry is not the bishop of our annual conference. Our, our annual conference is not the Central Conference, Central Texas Conference. Uh, bishop Lowry is a pretty powerful voice in my estimation. He wrote this and he used several analogies uh, or anecdotal things within it to kind of demonstrate where he sees that we've gone awry. And one of the things that he shared in this article was a conversation between district superintendents that he overheard. Um, and, I, and I take this again, this is a direct quote from what Bishop Lowry shares in this article. And he quotes, directly quotes, a district superintendent, which is an extension of the office of the bishop in, in our denomination, a district superintendent who said, quote, we need to stop preaching that Jesus died on the cross for us. It does damage to people. Yes, I'm letting that sink in for a moment. Bishop Lowry wrote after that, the first thing that came to my mind were the words from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses, verse 23, where the writer says, Paul says, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. He recognizes that. But we preach Christ crucified. The first thing that came to my mind also were words from 1 Corinthians. But out of the 15th chapter, in verses 3 and 4, where Paul writes, I passed along to you, Corinthian church, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ was crucified according to the Scriptures, crucified for our sins, according to the Scriptures, was buried and was raised on the third day according to to the scriptures. First Corinthians is considered one of the very early writings of the, New, of the New Testament. And I say that to say to you that this formulation was active within the first generation of the church. This new body that had no text other than the Hebrew text to go on was forming their own understanding of what had happened in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. They had come to an understanding that at the core of their message is this reality. Christ died for our sins. He was buried and he was raised on the third day. All according to the scripture. You hear that? It has been at the center part of the Christian proclamation for 2,000 years. But we've arrived in a day where people are willing to say, you know, we just need to stop talking about that business that Christ died for us because 
people find it to be offensive. I don't hesitate a bit, friends, to tell you that the gospel is offensive. It is. Because it hits us right at the core of our being. I have good news for you. Because the gospel is all about good news, right? The good news? Christ died for your sins. He died so that we would not have to suffer the punishment for our own brokenness, our rebellion. He lives so that we may have the hope of eternal life. Life with God. Life unencumbered. Life the way God meant for it to be from the very beginning. It's good news. But it's not the kind of news that the world is looking for. It's just the kind of news that the world needs. Make no mistake, friends. One day the world will go after Christ. The words of the Apostle Paul from Philippians 2 will come about. That at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. It will happen, I promise you. There will be a day when the world will go after Jesus. But the world now only goes after him when they don't understand. When he's popular, when he's the happening thing. And that's really the question I want to ask you this morning. And I can't think of a better week for us to think about the question. Are you the kind of disciple who is willing to walk with Jesus when nobody else will? When everybody else has something else going on, something else in mind, every reason in the world not to, every reason to look down on you and to think that whatever they want because of you, are you the kind of person who, like Peter, will say, where else am I going to go? You have the words of life. And I'll walk with you regardless. You may have seen on the way in that we've made available these palm crosses. If you didn't pick one up on the way in, you're welcome to on the way out. It's ironic, isn't it? The irony of this day. That the palm the symbol of celebrating Jesus on Sunday is fashioned into a cross. Is this your celebration? I hope so. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we confess to you that we are vulnerable to the things that are popular, to the things that um, seem to be attractive. 
But this is a week, Lord, when we are reminded of the offense of the cross. It's so easy to go with the crowd, Lord. But you've called us to be people who will walk with you even if we were the only ones walking. God, I pray that you would just touch our hearts in that way this week. This week. Today, in the days to come, Lord, help us just ask that question. How serious am I? How committed am I? How determined am I to, to walk in the way that Christ walks? Take us to the cross, but don't leave us there. Take us to the tomb when the cross is behind us the empty tomb before us, the resurrected Christ known to us. Father, we give you glory for your gospel and for the one who makes it so, Jesus our Lord. Amen. We're glad that you chose to spend this time with us in God's Word. You can catch our worship services online at www.rmumc.net. May the Lord grant you the light of his truth as you journey through this day.